0: For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangels call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. There is a teaching about what is to happen towards the end of the world that is common in certain Christian circles. It is known as the Rapture. There are various interpretations of the Rapture, but the most common is that at some point, just before the end of the world as we know it, just before Christ returns, there will be a time of great tribulation and suffering. But the Rapture is an event that is supposed to take place just before the worst of the tribulations set in. In this event, those who believe in Christ are to be snatched up into the air and taken away into heaven where they will be spared from all the suffering that is to come. This is a relatively new Christian belief, first popularized by John Nelson Darby in the 1830s but for the first 1700 years of the christian church nobody seems to have even thought of it nevertheless in some christian circles at least belief in the rapture is mainstream and if you have been exposed to it you might have the impression that it is something that all christians believe But any teaching on the rapture is based on only one passage in the Bible. The passage from Paul's first letter to the church in Thessalonica that I read at the top of this episode. So, perhaps, before we go all in on the idea of the rapture, it would be good to understand how the people in Thessalonica would have understood that passage. Could there be, do you think, a story that would illustrate that? This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 7.25 Is the rapture really in the Bible? Not many of the people in the Jesus Club in Thessalonica, were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. In the eyes of most people, they really didn't matter. Most were poor laborers. Some were slaves. But they didn't really let any of that bother them They knew that they mattered. They had been convinced of that when three travelers, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, had passed through their city on the way down one of the main Roman roads that met there. They had spoken persuasively about a man named Jesus. The Anointed One, they called him. And they said that because Jesus had been raised from the dead, he had made it possible for them to become a part of the one God's chosen people. They also promised that the risen Jesus would return someday soon, and they would be able to live in his renewed kingdom. Having been told all their lives that they had no worth, these Thessalonians received this message with joy, and they formed this club to learn more about this Jesus, encourage each other, and wait for his return. There was one condition. They had to give up the worship of the Olympian gods, or any other gods for that matter, in order to belong to Jesus. Many of them found that to be difficult, not because they were particularly fond of any of those gods. I mean, what had Zeus or Poseidon ever done for them? They always seemed to be busy taking care of the rich and the important people it wasn't really about the gods. It was more that their big temples were the places where everything happened in the city. Their commitment to Jesus essentially cut them off from the civic life of Thessalonica. But even that seemed to be a fair trade for all that they had gained by trusting in Jesus. And anyways, they consoled themselves with the thought that Jesus would be back real soon. And then all their neighbors and even the local elites would see, they would all see. After a time, Paul and the others moved on from Thessalonica and down into Greece. And as the weeks and then the months and even the years passed by, the believers began to lose that certainty. Nothing had changed, and Jesus never appeared to set things right. It is not surprising that they began to lose patience and wonder if they had been sold a false promise. And then there was something that happened that shook their faith to the core. A few of the most beloved members of their club grew sick. They prayed for them, and did what they could to take care of them, but it was all to no avail a couple of them weakened and died. Now they were really upset. They were dealing with the grief over the loss of loved ones, but more than that, they were upset with Jesus for taking so long to come back. Now, because of the delay, their beloved sister and brother had missed out on the triumph that they had been promised. It was just not right. Sometime after that, Timothy returned to visit them. Paul and Silvanus, who were now down in Corinth, had sent him to check in on them and see how they were doing. And poor Timothy! He got an earful. All of their questions and doubts about what they had been taught came out. But most of all, they expressed their extreme grief and disappointment for those who had died and for what they had missed out on. Timothy listened intently and promised them that he would take their concerns back to the others, and that Paul would certainly write back and address them all. When he left them, following the main road that led southwest, they did at least feel that they had been heard and comforted, but they looked forward desperately to hearing what sort of answers Paul might send. It seemed like they had to wait forever. It would likely take a week for Timothy just to get to Corinth. And who knew how long for Paul to write a letter and then find somebody who was heading the right direction and might deliver it. But one day, while they were waiting, they at least had a worthwhile distraction. It was late in the afternoon, just when many of them were finishing up their work for the day. It all started with a great cacophony of horns and the shouting of many voices. The sound was coming from a great distance just on the very outskirts of the city. But it echoed through the streets and boulevards, right to the very center. Everyone immediately knew exactly what was going on, and they excitedly whispered to one another, saying, Parousia! It is a parousia! And it wasn't just the people of the church who reacted like that. As they went out into the streets, they saw excitement and preparations going on everywhere. A parousia was something that the city of Thessalonica was quite familiar with. Whenever a high official of the imperial government came to the city, Parousia was the protocol that was used to give them a proper welcome. It was something that happened in Thessalonica often enough. Thessalonica was, after all, the most important city in the province of Macedonia, and the chief residence of the governor. In addition, the city lay at the intersection of two main roads. So it was practically unavoidable for anyone passing through the region. Given the unpredictability of travel and the unreliability of communications, a city didn't always know when it was going to be visited by someone important. Sometimes it could come as a complete surprise That was why the very first part of a parousia was the announcement. As the official approached the outskirts of the city, a great blast of the imperial trumpets would be ordered, accompanied by the shout of the official messengers crying out the name of the important visitor. That was the sound that everyone had just heard. And it had been so loud that it was obvious that there had to be many trumpets and a large retinue. The people immediately fell to speculating on who the visitor could be. It had to be a very prominent person. Could it possibly be The emperor? Might Claudius have actually come to see them? That would really be something, wouldn't it? Of course, the answer to that question would only be answered when the citizens went out to meet whoever it was. But that was something that had to be done in proper form. And that was okay. There was time to prepare. Because everyone knew what the next step in the Parousia Protocol was. As the visitor, and why not? Let's just go ahead and speculate that it really was the emperor. As Claudius approached the city, the first thing that he would encounter would be the tombs and the graves of its most prosperous former inhabitants. All cities were designed in such a way as to place the graveyards on the roads leading out of town. And so it had become part of the protocol for the Emperor to greet the dead of the city first. He would pause and do honour to the ancestors, and various ceremonies and sacrifices would be performed. This would all take some time, but the time would be well used by the people of the city, as they dressed in their finest, and prepared wreaths and banners for their procession to go out and meet their visitor. Thessalonica had experienced so many important parousias that they had even formed a band, the members of which quickly gathered their instruments and prepared themselves as well. Of course, only the free citizens of the city would have the honor of greeting the emperor, and there wasn't anyone who had such status in the Jesus Club. But, whether or not they were actually part of the official delegation, there were few people in the city who could resist the lure of joining in the procession just to watch the spectacle of it all. And so, yes, the people of the church certainly tagged along as the citizens processed out of the city. It was indeed the Emperor. There he stood, Tiberius Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, in all his glory. He was still a new Emperor, having just recently ascended to the purple. And no one in Thessalonica had ever actually seen him before. And so the people crowded around, and everyone tried to get a glimpse to see if he really looked as noble as his coins suggested. Of course, the Jesus followers in the crowd were hardly close enough that they could really see what Claudius looked like. And in any case, it was not as if they viewed the emperor as a god in the way that their neighbors did. But they could not fail to crane their necks and try to catch a glimpse as the local priests of the imperial cult stepped forward to offer incense before the divine Augustus. Eventually, after all the speeches and the sacrifices this part of the parousia was completed. A new procession was formed, this time with the emperor at its head. And with much music and singing, with shouts of joy and exaltation, the entire group returned to the center of the city. When they all arrived, the emperor would receive honors, And authority over the city. And then the feasting would begin, and likely would last all night long. But of course, the people of the Jesus Club were hardly important enough to be included in any of that. They headed off to their homes, knowing that they would likely be called on in the morning to help clean up the mess. They certainly knew that the parousia would be the only thing that anyone would talk about for weeks to come. The event of the season, maybe even the year. Even if they didn't think that the emperor was a god worthy of their worship, they were still glad that they had been able to experience it. The letter from Paul and the others arrived the very next day, carried by a man from the Jesus Club in Corinth who had been sent this way on some business of his master. The word of the delivery spread quickly among the believers and by the end of the day, everyone had heard. They normally gathered on the first day of the week to share in a common meal and to listen to the teaching about Jesus. But none of them could wait until then to hear what the letter said. Even though it was quite late by the time that all of them had finished their work, they all gathered at the modest home of the most prosperous man in the club and insisted that they hear it. And so, the best reader among them took a seat in front of them and broke open the seal on the letter. It was a comforting letter filled with encouragement and sincere love. Paul obviously had the same kinds of fond memories of the time that they had spent together that they did. He did address some of the concerns that had arisen among them, but he did so with gentleness and kindness. And then, after several minutes, the reader came upon a passage that made everybody sit forward and focus all their attention on his words. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, he read, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve, as others who have no hope. They couldn't help themselves they began to murmur excitedly among themselves that paul was going to actually answer the question that they had asked of timothy the reader had to stop glaring at them until the noise had subsided and then he went on to read that because jesus had risen from the dead he would be able to take the dead with him they became a bit confused as he continued on however for this we declare to you by the word of the lord he read that we who are alive who are left until the parousia of the lord will by no means precede those who have died Was that what he really meant? That the arrival of the returning Christ was like a protocol of the empire? No. No, that couldn't be. As much as they had enjoyed the pageantry of the parousia the previous day, it was still something that was so inextricably bound up with all the evils and the shortcomings of the empire. How could the coming of Jesus be anything like that? But, as they continued to listen, they were amazed to hear the letter describe, step by step, exactly what they had seen the day before. The cry of the heavenly messengers, the sound of the trumpet, the approaching Lord meeting first with the dead who belonged to him, and then all of those living going out and meeting with him as well. It was as if Paul had been right there on the day before, uh, taking notes. They stayed up quite late that night, discussing the letter, especially the part about the Parousia. The description had sparked their imaginations. They all agreed that Paul wasn't saying that when Jesus would come, it would be exactly like the emperor. Of course, he would be much better than any Roman official could be. But at the same time, the imagery of the parousia did speak to them. It helped them to imagine better what it would be like when their Lord came. And of course, it also made it quite clear to them that when He did come, it wouldn't be to take them away from this world. No, once they had met with their approaching Savior, He would lead them in triumph back to the earth in the beginning of true renewal in this world. Some things, unfortunately, get lost in translation. When Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica to tell them about what would happen when Jesus came, he used a very specific term. He called it a parousia. But since parousia was a Greek word that literally meant coming or arrival, that is how most English translations render it. Well, I cannot quibble with such a translation choice, it does unfortunately mask the fact that Paul was using a term that the Thessalonians would have immediately recognized as the name of an official protocol of the empire. Then, as Paul goes on to explicitly describe the steps of that protocol, we miss that too. But the Thessalonians wouldn't have missed it. Of course, my story of them observing the protocol the day before they received the letter is my own fanciful invention. But anyone living in a city like Thessalonica would have experienced it, likely many times. They would not have missed what Paul was describing. What does all of this mean when it comes to the teaching of the rapture that has been embraced by some Christians? Well, it means, first of all, that anyone who suggests that what is being described in this particular passage is an escape for believers from this world's trials and tribulations is wrong. Everyone knew what the next step of a parousia was, and it did not include all of the citizens of the particular city being visited, going off with the emperor, as he immediately went back to his imperial palace in Rome. Everyone knew that the next step was for everyone, now including the ruler, to return to the city and celebrate. Whatever Paul is here teaching the Thessalonians about what will happen at the parousia of the Christ, he is definitely not suggesting that they will in some way escape the world. He is promising them that their future is to be found in a renewed world. But the other thing that I think all of this makes clear is how Paul meant for people to understand what he was talking about. It is true that the early church lived in expectation that at some moment, their Lord Jesus would return to set things right in the world. This was absolutely something that allowed them to keep on going and not give up hope as they lived through some very difficult times. In this passage in his letter, Paul is trying to comfort the Thessalonians because they feel as if Christ's return is just taking too long. They are losing hope because in the delay people have already started dying and they are afraid that those people are lost forever. And he comforts them by giving them this description of what it will be like when Christ comes. He doesn't say when it's going to happen but he is promising that it will be an event That brings hope to both the living and the dead. But then he jumps into this description of the return of Jesus using imagery from a familiar imperial visitation protocol. I think that right there is an indication that he is not giving a literal description of what is going to happen. He's offering something more like a parable. He is saying that the coming of Christ is something like what happens when the emperor comes to town. And the point you need to take from a parable like that is not that you're going to study it and find out in perfect detail what is going to happen and exactly what events will take place when, that's not the point of a parable. And so I would suggest that anyone who wants to take this passage and use it to say that they know exactly what is going to happen in the future has missed the point of it. Paul is explaining to these Troubled Thessalonians, that Jesus is better and more reliable than any old Roman emperor, populist, or celebrity. You can count on Jesus, who will not abandon anybody, living or dead. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. And do leave a review on your podcast provider to help other people find and appreciate this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is "Ada" by Kevin McLeod. And the mood music of this episode was I'll Never Forget by Michael Moizekiewicz. The music is licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at filmmusic.io. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. Thanks again to my awesome Patreon supporters who back this podcast. They are amazing people. In fact, they are so amazing that I'd like to tell you about some of their own creative endeavors. I'd like to tell you about my supporter, John Borthwick, who has just created and launched a new ministry forum. Check it out at ministryforum.ca. Or let me tell you about another supporter, Matt Meyer. Who has been inspired by this podcast to try to do the same kind of thing with liturgy that I do with the stories of the Bible? You can check out his creative liturgies at churchoftheaffirmation.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.